following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Well, we continue in our teaching through the book of Philippians, which we have been calling the book of encouragement, because this is the chief aim of the book of Philippians, I believe, is to encourage. Uh, Paul's been showing us examples in the first several verses here that we've been studying for five weeks is what it looks like to be an encouraging friend, how to, how to be encouraging in our friendships with other. And Paul reaches this crescendo, he reaches this high point in his encouragement for his friends uh, in this passage this morning. And so let's see what he says in, in verses 7 through 8 in chapter 1 of Philippians. I'll read verse 3 through 8, but we're going to spend our time this morning uh, specifically on 7 to 8, but the, the rest gives us some context. Uh, so let's read, starting in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always and in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense of, and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. What a great verse. There is, there is no greater encouragement that can be produced than can be produced by this deep, abiding, and genuine affection that Paul has. Affection for others. And so today we talk about what it means to be an encouraging friend. Specifically, an encouraging friend is an affectionate friend. Guys and, and, and girls alike, if you have ever heard someone say to you, I wish, I just wish that you were a little more affectionate with me, it's good to know what they might be meaning by that, and maybe what they might not be meaning by that. Because despite what you might think, it does not mean, I want you to touch me more. Because that can have the opposite effect, I think, sometimes. But rather, and this is just a shot, this is my shot, I desire for you to act the way that one might act whose very core of emotion and affection was captivated by a yearning desire for me. And then act that way. Did I get close? I don't just want, I'm not looking for you just to touch me more or be closer to me or just be, just to be in the same room or spend time. I want you to act in such a way that a person would act if they just longed for that person and thought about that person, and loved that person. You want me to yearn for you? Now, we don't use this word a lot. We don't use, have you ever used that word, yearn? Sarcastically, maybe. Now, I actually heard, uh, we use the English Standard Version here at Holy Cross, the ESV, and, and I actually heard the, the, the general editor of the ESV um, study Bible talk about their difficulty in coming up with different words in the English translation from the original language of Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. And he's talking about the difficulty of translating these words, especially words that aren't used very commonly today, like behold. We see that in the Bible often, even, even in a modern translation, but it's not a word that we use a lot. Behold, darling, the mail has come. We don't say that. <laughs> but he says, sometimes there is no other word fitting. Sometimes there is no other word to fit, that is fitting to communicate what the author is actually trying to communicate to his readers. 
And so we keep words like this in here because these words are pregnant with meaning. And if anything, if we're confused by them, it forces us to pause and say, we don't use that word. What does that really mean? What does it mean to yearn for somebody? You know, that, you know what it means to yearn. You know that it belongs in a special kind of category of desire that is so unique. It cannot be replaced by any other word. It's, it is this captivating desire and longing for another person that results out of a heart that has been affected, that has been influenced by that person. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. I am affected by Christ, and therefore I'm affected for you. This is where... That word affection comes from, affect, to be affected or influenced by someone. So Paul is affected deeply in his emotions. He is affected. He's affected by the influence of the gospel working in his life, working in his heart, and affected by the gospel as it's working in his life and overflowing into his affection for people around him. The recipients of his letter, the the fellow believers in Christ, And this effect is total. His effect is from his head to his heart to everywhere in his life. He is affected totally by the gospel and the work of Christ in him. And it is having an effect on how he feels about others. So affection is not just a personality. Affection is not something that certain people are prone to having. Affection is an overflow of good theology for the work of God in our life towards others. And so, I have one point this morning. Now, I'm kind of tricky because I have one point, and that point has three implications. But, (laughs) one point, and here is this point for this morning. Affection for others is morally and biblically right. Affection is not a personality, but it's a willful disposition of the heart towards another person that we ought to have. It is right for me to feel this way, Paul starts out. It is right for me. This is a legal term he is using. It is right. It is if I were to be judged by a jury and a judge in a courtroom, and if they brought witnesses, and if there was uh, people looking at all the evidence, they would find that it is appropriate, morally and spiritually right, for me to feel this way about you. So this this is trial language through and through. When we realize that Paul is in prison while writing this letter, and he is at this point awaiting trial, he is awaiting to going before a judge to evaluate the rightness of his actions, he's thinking about this stuff. And he uses this trial language. He puts himself, the things he's thinking about in this discussion. He makes a claim. It's right for me to feel this way about you, the way that I do, to express this kind of deep affection for you. He says, I have witnesses, and that witness is God himself. He has a defense, and the Philippian people are his defense. They are partakers. These are the evidence of why he feels the way he does. They are partakers of the gospel, of the grace of God. And he sees it working out in their life. This is in plain sight. Here's the evidence of why I should feel this way. The way he feels has something to do with the way Jesus feels about them. Think about friends or couples, married couples or good friends, when, when you see people that have obvious affection for one another, what you might describe as affection, closeness, and, and a desire for each other, a longing for each other, 
There's a good question to ask that will make everybody uncomfortable, and I ask this question in every couple that comes for premarital counseling, and I ask, why do you feel that way about that person? I love to ask that. Husband and wife might say, well, he's, he's the kindest person I've ever known. I couldn't imagine life without this person. He's so supportive of my dreams. She doesn't hate me. She, she said yes. That's why I love her. Or a friend might say, well, he or she just gets me. They understand me. I feel like we're on the same wavelength. We have, we have so much in common. We just click when we get together. We've experienced so much in our experiences and in our time together that we are just lifelong friends. And so we turn to Paul and say, Paul, why? If we're putting him on trial, which he's putting himself on trial here, why do you feel this way? Why, at the, like, the deep seed of your emotion, you would say that you feel this affection for these people who have disappointed you at times, who aren't perfect? Why do you feel this way? Why do you go out of your way to, to make sure that they know exactly how you feel about them? He would say, because this is the way that Jesus feels about them. I feel this way with this affection, with the affection of Christ that has affected me and is affecting them. I feel this way, and it's right for me to feel this way about them because this is the way Jesus feels about them. I yearn for them with the affection of Christ. This isn't saying, why do you love me? Well, because Jesus told me to love you, so here I am. That's what I can do. Because in Christ, we love affection because in Christ we have a bond of friendship and unity that is unbreakable and the hope that God is in work in me and in work in you, and it causes me to love you and to pursue you with the same affection that Christ loves and pursues you. And this brings me so much joy to be a part of this life with you. That's a better answer than saying, well, because I like the person's sense of humor. I like what they do for me. And take note of this as a side. We should not love a person or express affection for a person primarily because of the work that they do for us but because of the work that God is doing in them. Otherwise, this affection is manipulation. It's self-seeking. We are having an affection for them so that they can do something for us. Often, we're all guilty of this. I know I am. We often think of affection this way. We, we, we love someone and do something, or we, we uh, give them words of, we flatter them or touch them in a certain way so that they will respond and give something back to us in return. That is not biblically or morally or spiritually right affection. But Paul is saying there is a right affection, and it's the affection that I feel for you, and it's, it's the way that Christ feels for you. Paul is saying, I am giving a fair analysis to these feelings. I am weighing all of my options. I am putting myself on trial and my emotions on trial. And all of my subsequent actions, because of my emotions, and the verdict is... It's right for me to feel this way about you because this is the way that Jesus feels about you. My heart has been affected by the gospel and so has yours. And so our hearts should have affection for one another. So it is the integration of Paul's mind and his heart in the gospel that shapes his Christ-like affection for his friends. Paul's saying, I'm right in how I feel. I know I am right in how I feel, because I am right in what I believe about the gospel and about Christ and how he works. And I cannot be wrong about how I feel 
if this is the way that Jesus feels. Because if Jesus feels this way, then I feel this way, and it can't be wrong. This is his reasoning. And Paul is saying in so many words, can anybody prove me wrong? Prove me wrong. Tell me that I feel the wrong way. Tell me that I am inappropriate about feeling such yearning and longing for you. No, as God is my witness, this is the right way to feel. Wouldn't it be great to have this kind of confidence in how we feel, in our emotions, in our affection for things? This is usually, this is often our conversation, at least in our head, how we, when we have an emotion that's expressed. I know I am right. I'm certain of it. I mean, I'm pretty right. There's a good chance that I didn't get everything completely right. I was wrong. Please forgive me. I mean, this is like, that's the normal progression, right? What would it be like to have that kind of confidence? Now, I know we maybe assert that kind of confidence in arguments. I am right, and I know I'm right, and you're wrong, and you need to change. But often we know we're wrong in those times, or it comes about that there, were, there was error in that, we were partly right, and so we were partly wrong, and where there's some repentance and hurt feelings and reconciliation. But Paul is saying, I am right. And he's not saying so arrogantly. He's saying it because I am right in who Jesus is. I know how he works. I know how he feels. And I'm feeling that same way about you. Pretty amazing. I'm right to have my heart affected by God in such a way that it would lead me to have an effect for you in the same way an affection for you, a longing for you. So given this portrait of affection for others based on the affection from Jesus, let's look at a few dangers. Let's look at a few dangers of an unaffected heart. Now here are my, the implications, the three implications impl- implied in this passage. And these implications, I think, will give us some application in here as we look at these dangers. So let's look at that, the dangers of an unaffected heart. An unaffected heart reveals, first, something wrong with how we view God. Paul doesn't say, I feel something, therefore I believe something about God. He says the opposite. He says, I believe something about God, therefore I feel something about you. I believe that God is in work at you in this way, and I believe that you share in the gospel with me. This emotion, after all, this emotion he feels, however profound, is an overflow of his theology of his doctrine, of what he believes. And so Paul shows us this order of of theology, affection, priority. My feelings, my emotions, my affection for you is flowing out of a God-centered and God-understood and Christ-saturated belief about him and about you. Our emotions must flow from our theology. If our theology is flawed, then so will our expression of that emotion, of that theology. So to express the the affection of Jesus is to be so wrapped up, so passionate, and so in tune with the work of Christ in our life that we feel and act and have emotions as an overflow of that belief. How you feel And this is the most convicting thing for me as I prepared this. How you and I feel is an overflow of what we believe. We often feel like our feelings belong to us. These are my feelings. You can't touch them. They belong to me. I own my feelings. It's something that's off limits to prejudice and evaluation. You cannot disagree with my feelings because they're feelings. You cannot disagree with my emotions because they're my emotions. They belong to me. You cannot judge me in my feelings because they're my feelings. But Paul is saying this. 
your emotions. Our emotions are not out of reach of the sovereignty of God. Our emotions are not out of reach of what God wants to do. They are not out of reach. They are not irrelevant to what God wants to form in our life, to look like Him, to feel like Him, to behave like Him. Our feelings must be directed by God. Our feelings are not off limits from the sovereignty of God. Our feelings, along with our actions and attitudes, are to be held captive by the love and grace of God. How you and I feel matters. It can be a thermometer. It can be a a, a warning signal light. It can be a mirror to what we believe about God and what we believe about others. God does not just want to form and shape our behavior. God is passionately concerned about our emotions. And so here's an application, is to evaluate our emotions and find out what those emotions might be telling us about what we believe about God. Taking questions like, how do we, God, why, why do I feel this way? What does this reflect about my, my belief about you? Does it mean that I, I believe that you're unreliable, that you can't be trusted, that you're mean-hearted, that you're unkind, that you're out of control? that you punish disobedience and reward obedience. Is that what I believe? Because that will in turn, it will cause us to treat people with that same way. Whatever we believe about God, we will treat people with the same way. If we believe that God punishes disobedience and rewards obedience, then we will treat people in the same way. When someone fails, we will treat them with contempt. If someone is good, we will treat them with favor. But we look at the life of Jesus and we see that God did something different. We see that God punished the perfectly obedient and rewards the disobedient, us. And we see that he rewards us in spite of our disobedience. That's you and me. And so we often put the same requirements on people that we think that God puts on us. We believe that our ability to be good is what earns us our love from God, then we'll make others earn our love. If we believe that God's affection for us shifts with our behavior, then our affection will change with people's behavior. So when we think about, we deconstruct what it means to be affectionate with others, we cannot help but see a further portrait of God's love and who He is. And we want to be more and more aware of, God, well, who are you? How do you act? What do you care about? And we will see that He is affectionate for us, us, that He has an affection for us even when we don't deserve it. 1 Thessalonians says this in chapter 4. Paul is saying, Now as to the love of the brethren. So Paul is saying, Okay, you guys are asking, how do we love each other? How should we love each other? Let me touch on that topic, he says. And then he goes on to say, You have no need for anyone to write to you. You don't need to be told how to love each other. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So Paul is saying, Guys, you keep asking me, and we ask this a lot, How do we love each other? How do we express grace to one another? How can we forgive each other? How do we bear with one another's weaknesses? How do we have a good affection for one another? How do do we forgive? How do we uh, enjoy? How do we love? How do we have grace? How do we have mercy? How do we have compassion? How do we do all these things? And Paul is saying, I don't need to tell you. You know Christ. Look at how he was. Look at how he has treated you. Look at how he has been merciful to you in spite of your deserving of it. Look at how he has been gracious. Look at how he has been forgiving. Look at how he has affection for you. Look at how he loves. Get as close as possible to knowing God's view for you 
and then you will know how to treat others, how to be a good friend. I think the application for this is difficult because every situation is, might be unique, but the answer is simple. As you truly realize the manner that God has treated you in Jesus Christ, treat others that way. Well, I'm not Jesus. I'm not God. How can I have this kind of energy and wisdom and strength to do everything? I'm not Jesus. He was, I mean, he was like perfectly God and perfectly human, and I, that's not me. And Paul would say, but you have, and he gets into this in the book of Philippians as we walk through it later on. He says, but you have the mind of Christ, and you have the love of Christ, and he has given you his Holy Spirit, and you have his love and his presence, and you have the affection of Christ, you have the power of Christ, you have the joy of Christ. You have these things dwelling in you. You, The living God is present in your life, forming you, transforming you, equipping you, empowering you, forgiving you, and loving you. You have these things. You have Christ. Another thing, another danger of an unaffected heart is this. An unaffected heart suffocates our ability to be thankful. The result of a heart that has been affected by God is thanksgiving. That's what these verses tell us in preparation for 7 and 8, these verses before. I'm thankful for God, to God for you, Paul says. For who specifically? All of you. I'm thankful for all of you, even those whose antics often seem to bring more grief than pleasure. I'm thankful for you too. You belong to God. It's our response then to be grateful for what God is doing in our life. Our lives belong to God. Everything we have is a gift from Him, and our responsibility is to practice the discipline of gratitude for everything that we have. Who comes to mind when you think about these things? Your kids, maybe your spouse, your roommate, your coworkers, maybe someone who's long gone that you wish you treated differently and thought, wow, I really wish I would have treated that person differently or been more thankful to that person or been more loving and affectionate for that person. I would encourage you, don't abandon the gospel as you look at all your regrets and weaknesses. Apply the gospel to even this kind of thinking. Wherever there is shame and guilt, let it give you reason to loudly confess the gospel. Because because of Jesus' work for you, because of his work for me and us received by faith, we've received the affection of God in spite of where we have failed. So the application might be practice the discipline of being grateful. Not only is this practice of gratitude help us in our joy and an aid for our joy, it's commanded by God. In all things give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. In all things give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ, to be thankful, to have a grateful heart for all that you have, even when things seem tough. And next, an unaffected heart hinders our grasp of the good news of salvation, of the gospel. So there was a problem with the early spiritual leaders, all the pastors, all the spiritual leaders, the Pharisees during the time of Jesus. They believed in the truth. They, they were unaffected by it, though. It never traveled from their hearts to their, from their, from their head to their hearts, and therefore they were unable to discern the real good news of salvation, the gospel Paul says, it's right for me to feel this way because the life and love of Jesus is directing my thoughts and attitudes, my feelings and emotions. Let's look at Matthew 15, what Jesus says to these leaders, about these leaders. He says, this people 
honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The same word used in Philippians, their heart. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They honor me with their lips. Now think about this. When, what does that mean, to honor me with their lips? He's not saying they just flatter me, they say nice things. Jesus is actually saying, no, they say the right things. They got it right. They're honoring me. What they are saying is true. They're saying the right stuff. They're saying the right thing. But get this, in the time of Jesus and even now, there are people who listened attentively to God's word day and night. There are people whose thoughts and actions were informed by the word of God. The Pharisees memorized the Torah, memorized it. They knew every word, every phrase, every passage. They knew it. They were raised in their, from their childhood to know and to recite and to know the Word of God. They were intimately familiar with God's teachings. They were people who thought God's words were beautiful and inspiring. It, it changed who they were, how they acted and how they lived. And yet there were still people, those same kinds of people, that remain unmoved unaffected, unaffectionate. Paul says, what is far from me? Or Jesus says, what is far from me? Their heart, the seat of their emotion is unaffected by me. They don't know, therefore, how to truly follow me. They don't know how to truly obey me and to obey my loving commands. They think they're following God, but they are not because their heart is not engaged. They engage their mind. They read the passage. They studied it and memorized it but they remained unaffected. The engaged mind, illuminated by truth, awakens awareness, makes us aware of what is true. But the engaged heart, affected by God's love, awakens affection. It's this unaffected heart that keeps us from this passionate commitment to God and to others. This unaffected heart that keeps us from expressing an affection for others the way that Jesus does. Has God's love affected you? Or do you merely have an engaged mind? Are the, are the teachings of God beautiful and inspiring? Or they, have they moved you to trust completely in what they say? A heart affected by the love of God has personalized sin. It makes us say, this is talking about me. When it says that we have fallen short, it doesn't just mean people and humans of which I am one. It means I have fallen short. I have disobeyed God. I am in deep need of the forgiveness of God. And we've come to this place of spiritual poverty. Like we know that we have nothing. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. We realize that we are beggars, that without God extending his grace to us, we have nothing on our own of, that could earn his favor. And then it's acknowledging that our, we are deserving of God's alienation, and instead he gives us his mercy. And we receive his affection. So I want you to go back to this courtroom. Go back to this mind that Paul is writing this in, in the courtroom. It is terrifying. It's a terrifying thing to stand before a God of the universe and give an account for all that we have done. Wouldn't that be just horrible? Our emotions can be wrong too. Our emotions, our feelings, our actions. Wouldn't it be horrible to stand before God and say, God, judge my actions. Judge my ambitions, my dreams, my affections. Judge my emotions. Judge how I'm feeling right now and at every point in my life. What a burden that we can't bear. 
David, the writer of many of the Psalms, King David even, he, he wrote about this and prayed about this and sung about it. And he said, who could stand? Who could stand before you and feel confident? No one. God is the judge and Satan in the presence of sin is the prosecutor. And Jesus is our defense, our redeemer. And he doesn't just declare us innocent. He doesn't just let us go. He declares us innocent because the punishment of our guilt was placed on him and he received it. He takes our sin and we take his righteousness. This happens in the courtroom of God. And when these realities are lost of what God has done for us, so will our ability to have a real affection for people in our life. All this leads to this inescapable conclusion that the fellowship of God's people must be a fellowship of affection. Despite inevitable sorrows, disappointments, pain of life, believers can be joyful, can always be affectionate. We can always be an affectionate friend. Let's pray and ask God for that. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.